Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference every year. Head over to CanMedEvents.com now to learn all about our CanMed 2021 event, which will take place September 29th through October 1st at the Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. Just last week, we added new presenters and panels to our schedule. We also rearranged the order of some of our presentations and panels so that each of our focus areas gets a dedicated time to shine on our main stage. While you're at CanMedEvents.com, don't forget to purchase your CanMed 2021 ticket. Although the early bird deadline has come and gone, you can still save by purchasing your tickets in advance. Plus, you can check something off your to-do list, and that's always a good thing. And if September can't come soon enough for you, we do have a few things that can hold you over in the meantime. First is our CanMed Archive, which is a searchable video library of all the past CanMed presentations and panels. You can find the CanMed Archive on CanMedEvents.com. Just click the banner on our homepage. We also have the CanMed Community Facebook group, where you can interact with other cannabis science enthusiasts who share relevant articles, papers, videos, photos, memes, podcasts, you know, all the stuff you love about Facebook. Go to Facebook and search CanMed Community to join the group or use the link in the show description. I also want to remind everyone that the healthcare provider study we are doing with the Cannabis Center of Excellence is still ongoing. If you are a healthcare provider, please take a few minutes to complete the survey to help us better understand medical cannabis knowledge, attitudes, and practices among healthcare providers in the US and Canada. As an added incentive, one lucky participant will win a CanMed 2021 practicum and full conference ticket. The link to access that survey is in the show description. Our guest this episode is Dr. Jeffrey Raber, CEO of The Workshop, an independent testing lab established in 2010. Dr. Raber is trained as an organic chemistry scientist, but he is also a serial entrepreneur, patent inventor, and executive with over a decade of experience in cannabis testing. At CanMed 2018, Dr. Raber presented Cannabis Compositions Viewed Through Molecular Glasses, which you can view on our CanMed archive page. At CanMed 2021, Dr. Raber will present Thermal Degradation, a Fly, and the Cannabis Vapor Ointment, which explores how the act of heating cannabis oils for vaping can alter certain molecules and how that information can be applied to testing regulations. We discuss what we have learned from the 2019 vaping crisis and how those lessons are being applied, what additives pose a threat to vape users, the lasting appeal of vaping products in terms of convenience and consistency, how inconsistencies in vaping hardware play a role, how cannabis vape products differ from nicotine products, the challenges and limitations of testing equipment and methods, and signs consumers can look for when evaluating the safety and quality of vape products. 
Before we get to my conversation with Dr. Raber, I would like to thank this episode's sponsor, Agilent Technologies. Whether you manufacture or test cannabis, you face the challenge of delivering high-quality products, increasing sample volume, and meeting emergent regulations. Agilent offers best-in-class cannabis and hemp analysis solutions featuring robust instruments, software, services, and consumables. Their team of experts can develop, implement, and optimize methods to get you up and running quickly. To learn more, check out Agilent.com. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Raber. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ben. Appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Okay, so we're talking about uh, vaping cannabis with you today. Um, you're going to be doing a presentation at CanMed 2021 titled Thermal Degradation, a Fly and the Cannabis Vapor Ointment. Um, first, can you give us a little bit of a, for, for those of us who aren't chemists in the, <laughs> in the room here or on the, or listening on the podcast here, what do we mean by thermal degradation and how does that apply to, to vaping cannabis? Sure. That's a great place to start. How do the molecules change upon heating? And degradation usually means breaking apart or changing or becoming something other than what you started with. So degradation, I think, is usually looked at in a negative context, but it's not always negative. It could be that it, it broke down into its starting components and there really wasn't that big a problem with it. So would I be correct in assuming that a, a simple example of this would be THCA breaking down to THC when it's um, when it's heated or combusted? Sure. The decarboxylation process would definitely be a, you know, a thermal change, right? You heat it up and you liberate CO2 to, you know, change the acid to the neutral compound. So, and there is a great example of degradation, technically not being maybe a deleterious or bad thing. So um, good example for sure. Okay, good. Glad I'm on the right track. All right, but let's step step back for a minute here. Um, and I imagine the inspiration for doing the the research that you've done into looking at, you know, how these compounds break down uh, in vaping has something to do with the, I guess we'll call it the vape crisis of 2019, where um, a great number of people were getting sick from um, contaminated uh, vape products. So. Let's talk a bit about that. Um, what was the cause for that, do we think? And um, how has how have vape products kind of changed since then? Sure. Um, I think, you know, right out of the gate, everyone was questioning what may have been the cause. And being, you know, having the benefit of time now, I think we're all able to look at it and pretty concretely say we believe it was vitamin E acetate was the culprit in that respect. Um, there was some other conjecture that maybe there were heavy metals and things of that type that might have caused some of those cases. But um, I heard last week in a vape panel, someone commented from the audience, they said they were doing some studies and they've always done trace metal analysis and they concretely can say that they don't believe it came from heavy metals. Now, even though we're going to see Colorado require, you know, heavy metal analysis of things coming up next year, like I think we're seeing the regulators react to this 
concern in mostly in rightful ways, right? I, I have no problem studying the metals, thinking like, let's really be aware of that that's not a problem so we don't encourage it or allow it to happen. But I think we can all say we've got a pretty solid handle on it with being vitamin E acetate and that it broke down upon certain temperatures, which are rather high temperatures. And I think there's an important point to be made there. Hmm. It broke down into a very reactive molecule called ketene. And this molecule then was reacting rapidly and adversely with the lung lining. Um, so it, it wasn't um, anything that had been found in cannabis. This was an additive that was put into these vape carts predominantly in markets with no testing. Um, you know, most likely the illicit markets, I think, was the high prevalence of this to give the appearance of a thicker oil. And when you don't have testing to verify that that thickness wasn't coming from THC, um, it was a visual representation. So they said, like, how fast do I see a bubble go from one side to the other if I flip the, the vape cart 180 degrees? And that was kind of the visual test, you know, on passing along the supply chain without a tested label. So we didn't see this problem in regulated markets as nearly as much. We didn't see that because everyone was pushing the potency numbers higher and re required testing to put it on the label, you know, would tell you, hey, this was 40 or 50% THC, it was not 70 or 80 that everyone was aiming for. That visual trickery was what was, you know, being at play there and was used vitamin E acetate to get there. And I think, you know, we, the first assumption was vitamin E, you know, everyone kind of familiar with that when vitamin E acetate generally recognized as safe for cosmetic and topical use. And I think that there's a, a big word of caution there. And, you know, just because it's safe for a specific type of use does not mean it's safe in other types of uses. So while it's fine to rub it on my skin, it was not fine to put it inside of a vape device. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of highlight that temperature piece, you know, at what temperature does this break down to form um, the problematic key team? It's rather high temperatures, like 500 degrees Celsius. So it's interesting that you see this um, and it makes you think it's not only chemistry and formulation that's at play, but also the hardware device. You know, mm -hmm. how hot does the hardware device get? Are there localized hotspots across the heating element? You know, what really do all the molecules feel in terms of temperature or thermal profile from the devices? And how might we need to regulate both the hardware com componentry and the construction of those and its performance in addition to which formulations and molecules you put in there? Okay. All right. A lot to, a lot yeah. to unpack there. <laughs> good question, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it's all good stuff. So... Going back to vitamin E acetate, um, I think you sort of already answered this, but I'll ask again. So was it known that that would be potentially harmful kind of before this event, if it were in a vape uh, product, or was this sort of an enlightening event that, that kind of revealed that? I don't think it was known, and I don't think it was even suspected. Um, so it kind of was, you know, alarming and enlightening in the same uh, regard, like, wow, that can happen. And why did it happen in this case? And I know there were some others saying, but wait, we think we've been using vitamin E acetate for a while in this respects, and we haven't seen the problem. And I think that then ties to, 
you know, how one, we don't know how prevalent it was being used, but we believe it was, you know, rather prevalent. And then two, did every single user that was experiencing that have the problem or was it related to the hardware that was actually, you know, getting really, really hot? Was it a certain hardware and combination of vitamin E acetate that caused that problem? I think that question still remains. Um, but, you know, I think there's good reason to suspect it was related to specific hardware with the use of that. So I think others would say they had been using it and didn't see the problem or it was unbeknownst to them, right? Maybe it was still happening, but it wasn't reported. It wasn't tracked. It wasn't in the news and you just never linked it to that case. Um, so I, I think it's difficult to always know, like, you know, what was the, the problematic component there? How might we suspect that this is coming? But it is important that we now know it, that we apply that to other things that are coming. And I wanted to be sure to try and highlight um, the rise of the acetates. So vitamin E acetate is a phenolic acetate. And other acetates that may be present might impart flavor and um, other pieces. They're known to cannabis. Not every acetate will have this same fate. But the phenolic acetates will be able to break down at this temperature to cause ketene. You need the phenol group to kind of support the chemistry of, of how that transformation happens. THC acetate, you know, delta 9, delta 8 THC acetates, um, those products are starting to, you know, and even CBD acetate could do the same type of thing because those are phenolic structures in the core components of the cannabinoid that would be acetylated as well. And you might see the same chemistry going on with that. So we've, I've started to see in the last few weeks, you know, Delta 9 THC acetate becoming more popular. And I'm really concerned that we might see Evali types of results for the use of some of those products as well. Um, and I think in general, we should say, look, let's err on the side of caution. These THC acetates weren't produced by the plant. They're not found in the plant. That probably is a great line of demarcation to say, let's stay away from those molecules until they're formally studied and they're really looked at and understood from a, a toxicology perspective to say, should we have those in these devices or be able to use it in a dab or anything else of that type? That class of compounds, it's, it's kind of like what we know from cigarette world and other worker exposures of diketones. Um, the diacetyl compound is known to impart a buttery, creamy flavor, but it's also known to um, provide popcorn lung to those that are overexposed to it. So this was a very popular flavoring. Over half the components in the nicotine space in 2016 had this compound, but it's now been a banned class of molecules. You're like, you don't want those things because they may form um, this type of problem. And I think we need to think of phenolic acetates in the same way. Because we saw this with vitamin E acetate, we don't want delta-9 or delta-8 or CBD acetates to be used in inhalation without fuller, like more fully formal studies on them to really be sure how to best use them that way. Okay. So what would be the benefit of using an acetate form of the compound rather than a non-acetate form, like as a, as a manufacturer or as a consumer, is there a benefit to that? I don't think there's a significant benefit in this regard. So some, sometimes you see these, they're called pro drugs so that, you know, maybe their absorptivity is a little better. They get more into different places in the body than you, you know, may be able to deliver them 
deliver it orally, whereas before you weren't having that actually be absorbed. Um, you see pro-drug formulations and stuff in the pharmaceutical space all the time. It also opens up patentability. Um, you know, it's another molecule, so I might have a reason to kind of go down that path. In this case, I think they're looking at it more from a regulatory perspective, like, hey, it's a different molecule that's not um, maybe outlawed or banned if it's not Delta-8, if I made it in acetate, is that something that the legal language hasn't caught up with? But physiologically speaking, you know, there's not perhaps a great deal of advantage to using that. It's typically meant from formulation and, and absorptivity. We know we get THC in us pretty well, right? We, I don't see the advantage there. We've formulated it in tons of products. So it doesn't seem to be a big you know, advantage in that respect. I think some of the manufacturers are trying to amplify a message saying the physiological effects are bigger and better, but I'm not hearing anyone substantiating that. So I don't know if that's more marketing speak to say, hey, you know, like, hey, come buy this and try it. But, you know, I think we should err on the side of caution and say, well, someone clinically study that, show me blood data that proves that this would give me those responses. And maybe the form that it's best in is an oral dosed form. And it might be very helpful in that respect. But it, it doesn't have the ability to be made manufactured cheaper, and it's you know going to definitely not be as cost effective. And physiologically, I'm, I'm struggling to find why that would be advantageous. Hmm. So you mentioned earlier that some of the regulations are changing around testing vape products. Where do those stand now, and where do you kind of see that they might be going? So Colorado took a good lead in saying, let's understand the heavy metals that are coming out of the device. Um, other, some states require like end product testing. So you'll say, you know, one state would say, test the oil before you put it in the vape device. Others will say, hey, test the oil once it's been in the vape device and packaged and we'll take that. That might be able to catch a little bit more of the leaching, but it's not the same as when you're using it, of course. Um, we see more and more states saying, let's see what components are going into these inhalable formulations. They're not necessarily requiring testing for that other than test for the presence of vitamin E acetate and assure me there's none in there. And some are starting to add like squalane, squalene, and, and a few other components to that list. So Colorado, again, it said no MCT, no PEG and PG, and no, um, vitamin E acetate. And some states are saying, you know, you might have to test to prove that vitamin E acetate is not present. Um, but we're not seeing a tremendous amount of, you know, outlawing or requiring a lot of testing for different molecules in vape devices. But we are seeing regulators starting to say, okay, what are we putting in there? Disclose to me your formulation, all the ingredients, how much of these things you're using, um, and then let us know. And some states are also saying, put this list of molecules in the package for the consumers to have access to, um, which I, I think is, is nice and interesting, but some of these, you know, big chemistry words, people are just going to be like, whatever, right. you know, right. I, I think it's kind of like a package insert in your pharmaceutical product. I don't know how many folks read all of those. I mean, if you have trouble sleeping, it might be good to start reading some of that stuff. It can be very technical, very, you know, it's very informative, but only to someone that may be trained in a lot of those technical words. Um, and if you cherry pick, you know, like one molecule and say, Hey, look, I found this one in here. It's not just the molecule, but the concentration and exactly how much would be, you know, introduced to the individual um, during normal course of use. I think that's another interesting challenge with cannabis. You might have someone that takes one or two puffs of their vape device a day, 
all the way to the other extreme where someone consumed an entire gram, um, you know, the entire cartridge in a day. So what's the exposure limits and use regimes that we have with that? Much like we want to say we want to put a ceiling on the temperature so that we know these devices aren't going over the temperature. Should we guide users to say like, hey, we've kind of looked at like normal use would be, you know, this range. If you're going over that, you might see other problems we're not aware of. And how do we then start to track those types of things too? But this is a enormously complex um, and multifaceted problem from, you know, hardware to formulation to toxicology to what chemistry changes are happening in, in these types of things. So it's it's going to be a little while till I think we start to get a better handle on some of it. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you about that, specifically the hardware. Um, I have to imagine that the different heating elements in different ways in different products could, you know, really be a variable that'd be hard to control for. Exceptionally so. And even some uses, right? If you, you know, see the the wick that, that is no longer really present anymore, but if it wasn't wetted and it was dry, like that could be all of a sudden getting much hotter before the oil melts onto those things. Some of the heating platforms might have the same effect. So what's the material of construction of those? Are they ceramic? Is it touching any other metals? Um, what else may be in or not in the glass uh, chamber? Is it even a glass chamber? Um, there are a lot of components that are wetted or in touch with the, the oil and the formulation in a vape device. So it, it becomes you know, a lot more challenging in that respect. Now, they're not all at the same temperature, right? The outside of the chamber is very different than what's on the heating element, which is very different than what's on the very tip that's at, actually at my mouth and my airway. Um, and I think trying to get a better handle on that is, is really a difficult challenge in its own right too. Yeah. Do you foresee that there might be some standards that need to be, uh, put in place for, for the hardware so that it is more consistent? I think so. I mean, I, I yeah. think that might be one of the things coming down the path. We, we're going to learn a little more about hardware and some of these things from the FDA and the tobacco space, right? As they're all now going about registering these things, I think we'll start to say, okay, like these types of hardware, are, we're able to get through the gauntlet and are acceptable with these formulations. And that might cause like a de facto manufacturing standard because they're going to want to make much the same components or same devices. So you say, look, if these are the ones getting through, then I'll start applying, you know, my manufacturing effort elsewhere. I've got economies to scale and now I can offer it cheaper. Um, there are differences, though, from when you're looking at it in the nicotine space versus the cannabinoid space. You know, cannabis is more oily. It has different components in there. It needs different temperatures to vaporize the mixtures. So we'll learn some, but not everything. But there are groups, you know, like ASTM and some other groups that are trying to be forward looking and start to establish some standards for formulations and componentry of the hardware. So I think it won't be too long till we get at least a starting point in that respect. Um, and then hopefully we can have many labs starting to study those to say, hey, look, here's what we're seeing across the board on four or five different hardware devices, not just the one that I, I picked for myself. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could, you could talk a bit about the research that you've done. Um, what did those experiments look like? What were some of the results you found? So we started from looking at, you know, just the terpene formulation and what might be uh, problematic in its analysis. So it's, it's really easy to say, hey, look, here's this terpene formulation, and I know there's nothing in there that's not supposed to be, but why is it failing for a residual solvent? 
And it was much harder to actually go about trying to understand where that might be forming, when it was present, to eliminate all the potential sources of external contamination from the lab, um, and to really start to find out that it, it is caused by temperature in the presence of air. So when you start to understand, you know, oxygen is the enemy of, of degradation. It is actually the one that catalyzes a lot of these problems. We see oxidative degradants. They can then form allergens. They can form other products. Well, if I start to form a residual solvent and I'm failing a residual solvent test, then the products can't go to market. You can see it to a greater extent with the neat terpene formulation. So you can start to understand okay, when I have only these ingredients in this mixture and I put it inside the headspace analysis, what am I starting to detect? Why am I detecting more than just these components? It starts to make you think, well, at certain temperatures I see this and I can accelerate that if I raise the temperature. And what else might be showing up in that regard is generated predominantly by oxygen in that case. So in these studies, you know, air was the enemy and you probably have a little bit of air in your vape device too, but we didn't have any external metals or any other like hardware components that might be present inside of the vape device either. So the molecules weren't sitting on, you know, this wetted surface that was hitting that temperature with this metal catalyst perhaps and in the presence of air. It really was just the molecules themselves in air in a glass vial. Um, and you could still see some breakdown into a couple of the residual solvent components that, that might like make you wonder why they're there. They're not at alarming levels, and this is a neat formulation. So these things are always used in 10% or less in the vape devices. So we're not even sure if you'll see them outside of the vape device. Um, while they may be there, they may not be detectable, depending upon the actual limits that are in there. Um, so it, it raised a concern of like, what temperatures and under what conditions do you start to see these things? Um, and really, I think you start to see them as you raise the temperature and definitely in the presence of oxygen, then it raises the question of, well, what else might accelerate those types of um, those degradation pathways? So would the hardware component do it or do I see something otherwise because of the hardware componentry as well? So am I understanding this correctly that the actual terpenes or cannabinoids in the oil are breaking down to resemble residual solvents or are the residual solvents In some there? cases, yeah. yeah. No, like they are definitely solvent-free when you get them and when you test oh. them the right way, you can say like, I'm seeing none of these. But if you, you know, um, put it in the presence of oxygen and heat it up too much, you can start to see one of the residual solvents, predominantly acetone. Um, so it's not a, a significant concern and certainly at super low levels. So from a toxicology perspective, it's not alarming, but from a perhaps regulatory perspective of like, oh, great, are people going to fail their regulatory checks once it's in the final packaging? And then why would they fail it? Who would they be blaming? You know, who's responsible for those things? Are the limits for the regulatory line set at an appropriate level? And, or does this just need to kind of help educate labs into setting them up in different fashions so that they run the test without generating that problem? So it is as much an analytical problem, um, probably more so of that, that what we've hmm. kind of worked through than it was um, worrying about a toxicology problem. But it does start to make you think about these degradation pathways and what else might you start to see, especially when you couple it with vitamin E acetate and you start to know that there are, you know, deleterious degradations of some of the molecules. Interesting. 
And I, so, I'll just like like maybe I'll throw it out there to everyone else. When you combust cannabis, right? We know how much THC you have on the flower material, but yeah. our study that we had done, uh, I think it was 2015, like we could only find 40 plus percent of the actual THC molecule. So looking everywhere at the smoke stream, the side streams inside the rest of the combusted plant material that was there, like capture everything possible. I don't know where the rest of it went, <laughs> right? It didn't all become CBN. It breaks down into many different things. So if you look at combustion analysis of plant material, you see some of these same, um, you know, residual solvent pieces like acetone that's known to form just from the plant materials because these components will break down like that. But when you look at a combustion analysis, you see many, 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 many more molecules that actually form. The question is, what's their concentration? And with cannabis, are the good molecules greatly overwhelming any potential concerns? I think we've known people to be combusting cannabis for long periods of time, and we don't see deleterious toxicological outcomes from that. So the molecules present in cannabis are not nearly as much of a concern, even at combustion temperatures as something that's a brand new additive like vitamin E acetate. So I think, you know, that's where you got to start to say like, we're never going to know this problem tomorrow. Like we're not going to have all the answers tomorrow. It's so big and complex. How do we step safely today with some sort of sense of comfort, especially if I'm a regulator that's tasked with protecting public health and safety and even a responsible, you know, provider of brands. How do we do this? we think that it's best if you stick to what we know in the plant already. So if those things are modeled after the plant, that they, you know, are closest to those formulations, they're in similar concentrations and ratios, then you have a little bit more, you know, comfort level with it from a toxicological perspective to say, well, people have been combusting these molecules for a long time and we haven't seen them, you know, really with like alarming outcomes. So unless there's something uniquely being catalyzed or the temperature is way higher than we think in some of these vape devices, we're probably going to be, you know, in a decent realm, at least one that we can be comfortable enough with today while we embark on the further study. And, you know, how long have people been using cannabis vape devices is another key thing to think of, mm. like 2013, 14. I mean, it's not like they just showed up last week and we're really having these problems. So there's been a lot of use so far that we haven't seen, you know, a valley in every single scenario. So it does inform us that, hey, we're probably in a pretty comfortable realm. We're probably okay when we stick to the molecules that are in cannabis. But we should be very careful if we choose to step outside of what's there because we don't have a body of knowledge with that. And we might see the unexpected and that could be catastrophic like we learned in 2019. Yeah. And that's a great point. Uh, and the fact that you know these products have been around for a number of years and doesn't seem like they're going to go anywhere either because um, there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of advantages to their to their appeal. Right. In terms of convenience of being discreet and, you know, just being something that people can enjoy. Um, and even consistency and standardization, right? Mm -hmm. So if I can make that formulation consistent, if I can have a solid hardware componentry that's made the same every time, then I can give a patient something that they know they can, you know, I get my response that's required off two or three puffs, depending on the day and what else might be going on. It, maybe it's not every single one, but I get a rapid response 
you know, I can really use that to titrate myself and I can look at it more like a medical delivery platform than, mm. you know, highly variable plants or something that somebody keeps calling the same name. And I, you know, every time I get a different blue dream experience with somebody, please stop doing that to me. You know, I think uh, cannabis patients really struggle to find something that works, but if you can make it consistently and then they find that it works for them, then that's fantastic. There's nothing more cruel to me of saying, here, this worked once, but I'm never going to give it to you again, even though I'll, I'll label it the same. So I think they, you know, they shouldn't go away. They represent a really like strong position for standardization and for really, you know, all the other beneficial uses that you said. But in addition, patients can greatly benefit from the use of these devices when made well. Um, and I think that's what we really need to strive for and set those standards accordingly. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and I think that your your call to kind of stick to the components of the plant and not not be uh, adding additives to it and kind of introducing uh, these different variables makes a lot of sense. But what about, you know, adding in additional terpenes to kind of create a different profile, a different flavor? Are there concerns with doing that? Or, you know, is there certain limits that should be placed on, you know, the concentrations of those? Terpene's a huge word to a chemist like myself, right? There's like tens of thousands of those <laughs> known on the planet. Um, we know maybe 150 of them inside of cannabis. So again, if they're found in cannabis, we've seen some of their uses. We understand what their concentrations are in that. Um, and we stick within that relative ballpark. I feel pretty good about that. But Taxol is a terpene and, you know, that's cytotoxic, right? It's a great anti-cancer agent, but I wouldn't want anyone trying to put that in a vape device because they thought it was another terpene. So, you know, that word is very broad to chemists mm -hmm. and maybe to others that are looking there. Now, if I'm playing with, you know, botanical terpenes or, or sourced differently, um, molecule is a molecule. As long as that is that molecule, it's the right one at the right purities, then I, I have no concerns with that as long as, again, it's at the right concentration. So too much like high terpene extracts may even be kind of problematic because too much of those things, the plant makes them to kind of keep things away. Like it might become an irritant to some folks. It could irritate the airways. Um, again, oxidative pathways for degradation of those might cause some of them to be allergens or really irritating. So there's a, a fine balance and a realm there too. We might find that there's some that we want to remove as opposed to putting in there. Um, so having the ability to kind of tailor which ones you use um, might be very, very advantageous, especially to certain populations. But, you know, terpenes from cannabis or found in cannabis from other sources even, I, I feel pretty comfortable with that. But if you start to grab like, you know, some unbeknownst terpene from somewhere else because you think it drives a unique effect, well, then we might have other problems, especially if it was something that was never heated and inhaled before. Excellent. All right. Winding down here, I was wondering, is there anything consumers can look for in products that can kind of help them determine um, safety, quality or anything like that so they can maybe kind of avoid some of these pitfalls until we kind of really figure out what the regulations or what the standards should be? It's probably going to be different in different states. You know, some states will already have been putting rules in place, but I, I think we'll see more of them catch up and evolve their rules to do so too. Like say what's in the product, you know, are these components found in cannabis or not? What might their concentrations be, which I can infer from the THC concentration or the CBD concentration of the product. Um, 
what does my brand or producer tell me about their quality? How transparent are they? What are they trying to demonstrate to me? You know, what do I see on the label of the packaging? Like those types of things, you kind of got to look at it holistically. Like each part of it is going to be a little bit of a clue. But I think that along with standardized or consistent products being generated, if I can consistently output the same thing, I'm probably watching my quality very consistently to make sure I'm doing that. And I'm probably more minded towards being careful of what I'm putting in the products. Um, so I, I think, you know, ask the brands, ask the producers, ask those that are providing the products and see what kind of answers you get. Um, you know, it might not always be on the label or in the package, but um, most of them are pretty engaged with consumers, especially via social media. So you can kind of see, hey, they're trying to tell me the right things. You know, do I really know? Well, if I'm going to use this product for the next five years, maybe it's worth me sending one to the lab and paying a couple mm -hmm. hundred bucks to go find out myself. Every lab that I know of will be happy to, to work with an individual at pretty reasonable prices to say like, yeah, if you want to check your consistency or you want to know that this one's fine, um, most all of them will do that too. So that's a little bit more extreme and a little more costly because I know even the products can be expensive for patients, but you could go to that extreme if you wanted to. Excellent. All right. Before I let you go, um, I wanted to give you a chance to plug any social media websites, any any and every, any and everything you'd like to share with the audience so they can get in touch with you or, or follow up with what you're working on? Sure. Um, the workshop, T-H-E-W-E-R-C-S-H-O-P. Um, we have our website.com. It's all over social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, things of that type. Um, mine's at Dr. Jeff Raber. You can find me on um, Instagram mostly that way. I don't post much, but I, I do respond to folks if they write to me. Um, and certainly more than happy to receive emails to jeff at the workshop.com as well. Um, but yeah, feel free to reach out and follow along there, whichever way might be uh, best to your liking. All right. Excellent. Thanks again, Jeff, for joining us and can't wait to see you out in Pasadena. Thank you again for the opportunity, Ben. I appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you in Pasadena as well. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Raber. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to our sponsor, Agilent Technologies. Our next episode drops August 18th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, go to CanMedEvents.com to check out our CanMed archive. Go to Facebook and join our CanMed community group. Like our CanMed page, follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And if you're listening on a podcast app, please do rate and subscribe. We always appreciate the support. All right, until next time, please stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you on the next CanMed Coffee Talk.